At the same time, when he established the new covenant, the Sabbath as an Old Testament law passed away. But the principle one day in seven did not pass away. This means that there was a precedent set at creation. Though the day of the week has changed, and though the way we observe the day of the week, Sunday, different than the way the Jews observe Saturday, vastly different, it is nevertheless to be a day of rest. A day to remember, first and foremost, the Lord's resurrection. That's why I said this morning we need to be careful with so-called holy days, including Easter, because every Sunday is a day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. It's the Lord's day. It's the day He rose from the dead. So I think it's wrong to twist Jesus' words to overturn the principle of one day in seven. And many people will try to do that. And I think that it's wrong. Resting from worldly employments is a biblical concept and a biblical precedent that was established at creation. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Mark chapter 2, and let us begin reading again in verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord for our help as we come to His Word again this evening.
Father, what a privilege it is to gather and to study Your Word this evening, and we pray, Lord, that as we continue our thoughts about this most important subject of the Sabbath, as we look at the life of our Lord and this incident in the life of our Lord, we pray that You would help us to understand the significance of Jesus' words and Jesus' actions. Help us to understand that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And help us to see that the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We pray for Your help and the blessing of Your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little bit of history uh, regarding our church before we get into this text. When Jeff and I sat down several years ago now and began to pray through how it would be that we would start a Reformed church in this area, one of the things that we initially spoke about right off the bat was the importance of the Lord's Day and the significance of Lord's Day worship and how we both felt our convictions were that the Scriptures taught very clearly the principle of one day in seven. That is, that even though we live in the New Covenant, there is still that Sabbath principle, that there is the principle and the concept of Sabbath rest that is carried over into the New Covenant now that takes place on Sunday, the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. And really, our plans in establishing a church were rooted in simplicity. We did not feel that starting a church was complicated. Starting a church is very difficult. It's one of the most difficult things you will ever do, but it's not complicated. And our discussions seem to always come back to talking about what we refer to as the ordinary means of grace. Now, if you're not familiar with that terminology, the ordinary means of grace is to say that there are certain things God has especially blessed that when God's people participate in those means of grace, observe those means of grace, they experience what we could call an extraordinary measure of God's goodness, an extraordinary sense of the presence of God. And if you read church history and you read the confessions, you will find that the ordinary means of grace include simple things like reading the Bible, reading the Bible privately, reading the Bible publicly, the preaching of the Word of God, prayer and fellowship. And of course, when you come to the New Testament and you open up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, you see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the Word of God. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which is a technical term to refer to the Lord's Supper, which is also a means of grace, to prayer and to the fellowship. Those were the things God's people did. Acts 20 and verse 7 says, on the first day of the week, because that was the day our Lord was raised from the dead. And that, in a sense, became, in the new covenant, the Christian Sabbath. But in starting a church, there's one important element that you need to have, and that is people. And even when you gather a group of people, it's difficult as you try to get to know one another and you try to build a culture that is biblical and that honors the Lord, Uh, you're limited by when you meet, where you meet, how you meet, all of those sorts of things. And so Jeff and I have been in prayer for a number of years that at some point in the life of this church that we would be able to gather twice each Lord's Day. That is not because we want to be legalistic, but it's because we understand that that principle of one day in seven where you begin the Lord's Day worshiping the Lord with God's people and you end 
the Lord's Day, worshiping with God's people, that there is not only historical precedent and confessional affirmation, uh, but there is even biblical precedent because the Bible says not only did they meet on the first day of the week, but it says day by day they continue to meet one another. You can't meet together as a church too many times. So it seems natural that on the Lord's Day we would come here this evening and gather again. Now, don't get your hopes up because next week it's not on the church calendar to meet here again in the evening. However, as people come and as people show an interest and the more people we have, we will look for more and more opportunities and Lord willing, someday we will meet every Lord's Day in the morning and in the evening as well. But all of that to say, it is good to see you all again this evening. Now to Mark chapter 2. We are looking at this amazing incident in the life of our Lord in which, as I said this morning, He refuses to back down or to apologize for what He and His disciples did on the Sabbath. They were guilty, according to the Pharisees, of harvesting. They were guilty of reaping and sifting and winnowing and preparing a meal on the Sabbath, all of which were ridiculous accusations, none of which were true. Jesus and the disciples were ministering on the Sabbath day, and as they passed by a field, which was permissible, according to Deuteronomy 23-25, not just to pass by a field, but to pass through a field, and to gather hands, handfuls of grain to satisfy one's hunger, was built into the law of God as a measure of the mercy and of the grace of God. It was built into the law of God as a means to say that God's people ought to care for one another. After all, Jesus said that the law of God is summarized in two concepts, love of God and love of neighbor. And so as one obeys the law of God, he is loving God and simultaneously loving his neighbor. And this is one way in which in the Old Covenant it was expressed that you loved your neighbor by allowing people to pass through your fields when they were hungry and to grab handfuls of grain. But as we discussed this morning, the Pharisees were not satisfied with what the Scriptures said. The Pharisees were not satisfied in the prohibitions and the allowances of what one could do or could not do on the Sabbath. And they were infatuated with the traditions of man. They were infatuated with what was referred to as the tradition of the elders. They were infatuated with the Mishnah. They were infatuated with the book of Jubilee. All of the various documents that cataloged all the things you were allowed to do and not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And so when they saw Jesus and the disciples picking this grain, they already wanted to destroy Jesus And so they made this accusation. Jesus makes that statement in verse 28 that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That was because out of all the Ten Commandments, it was the Fourth Commandment, honor the Sabbath as a holy day of rest that the religious elite used to show off their spirituality and to pick on everyone else that didn't match up to their spirituality. The issue at hand was the fact that they believed in works salvation. They obviously would have never said that because they would have affirmed the importance of having faith like Father Abraham. They knew that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But they began to add to that concept of the grace of God, works salvation. Not altogether different than historically and confessionally what the Roman Catholic Church believes. The Roman Catholic Church does not deny that faith is necessary for salvation. It's what they add to the gospel. It's the penance. 
It's the Mass. It's the good works where they're adding things to the Gospel to say that faith in God is not enough. You must do certain things. And to simplify it this evening, that's exactly what the Pharisees believed. Judaism was apostate by the time Jesus came walking on the scene. Jesus chooses to expose their traditionalism, expose their legalism, because He knew that He fulfilled the principle of the Sabbath. I quoted this morning, Matthew chapter 11, Come to Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath in the sense that the Jews thought that they could earn salvation by obeying God's law, and Jesus was here to say, He is the final, eternal Sabbath rest. Look to Me for your salvation. Rest from your good works. Rest from your self-righteousness. Rest from your trust and what you can do to earn favor with God. Rest in Me, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. That is the Gospel. And so when Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, one of the things that He is affirming and asserting is the fact that even your most highest standards of holiness found in the fourth commandment with everything that you have added to it, it means absolutely nothing to me because I am Lord even over your observance of the Sabbath, how you observe it and why you observe it. And I'm here to tell you that you are observing it in a legalistic way. That's basically what Jesus is dealing with here. Now the scene opens up to us and we wanted to make four observations. First we saw the cited action in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. As I said, the Pharisees were obviously following Jesus and the disciples and so when they hurled the accusation at him that they we're traveling more than a Sabbath day's journey, which was approximately 1,999 steps. They too were guilty of that very thing, revealing their own hypocrisy. But they were trying to trap Jesus. As you recall, in chapter 3 and verse 6, we read this this morning, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus as to how to destroy him. So they are looking through their legalistic sites, to find some action that they can accuse Jesus and the disciples of committing some sin. And so they choose this Sabbath, this day, and what they witness. But that cited action then took us, verse 24, to the self-righteous accusation. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You'll have to forgive Mark. He's a little bit brief. He's the most brief of all the Gospel writers. But when you put together what Matthew says and what Luke says, you will find that they were not just asking Jesus why He was doing what He was doing on the Sabbath, but they had first asked the disciples. And undoubtedly, the sense is, is that they were harassing the disciples and the disciples weren't giving an answer. And they were harassing Jesus and Jesus wasn't giving an answer. So that Luke says... 
nothing about them asking a question. Luke says they just hurled the accusation at him by saying, you are doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. You see, they really weren't interested in a discussion. They were interested in condemning Jesus because they wanted to destroy him. And this is what they sought to do. Puffed up with their own self-righteousness, they accused Jesus of doing what was not lawful on the Sabbath. What was not lawful, not according to the Scriptures, but what was not lawful according to their traditions. Well, that cited action and self-righteous accusation then led to the scriptural answer in verses 25 through 27, which came to us in two parts. First, the scriptural illustration, verse 25, and Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. As I said, it's not that they were ignorant of this when Jesus says, have you never read? He knows they were familiar with it, but really what he's saying is, have you not read and have you not understood? Do you not have spiritual ears to hear? I see you have physical ears, but do you have spiritual ears? Do you have the ability to understand that even with God's law, it was structured in such a way that there were circumstances in which, at least at this point, this is one example, a ceremonial law which said you could not eat the holy bread on the holy table in the holy place next to the holy of holies that was intended for the holy priests, you can make an exception if someone of importance is hungry. Or perhaps anyone for that matter. But here was David, beleaguered, running from King Saul with his men, Ahimelech would have been dishonoring God and breaking the law if he had not given that bread to David and his men. And Jesus is using this as an illustration to say if if David and Ahimelech could break the law of God according to how you view it and demonstrate love, mercy, faithfulness, grace, a law that was divinely established written with the finger of God, then I certainly can tell my disciples to break your Sabbath regulations, which, by the way, aren't God-ordained, but are man-made. That's the point. That's the scriptural illustration, which then led to the scriptural implication, verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man was created before the Sabbath was established, indicating the fact, according to Genesis chapter 2, that the Sabbath was obviously made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Man was not made for the sake of the Sabbath. Man was not made so that he could worship the Sabbath. Man was made to worship God, and the Sabbath was given to man to be a blessing, not to be... A burden. The Pharisees, no doubt at this point, understood that they were not up to snuff, according to Jesus, the theologian. Jesus knew more Bible than they knew. Jesus knew more theology than they knew. Jesus is God. And in verse 28, He claims that very thing. So we move from the cited action, the self-righteous accusation, the scriptural answer, Now to the stunning apex. Verse 28, 
Jesus concludes by saying, So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. First thing that Jesus does in this statement is He points out His identity. Notice He calls Himself there the Son of Man. And He says... The Son of Man, referring to Himself, is Lord. Now, you can't see it in the English, but the Greek wording is emphatic. It actually places kurios, the the Greek word for Lord, at the beginning of the verse to make the point that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is claiming deity. He's saying that He is God. Earlier, You remember in chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, when Jesus is preaching in his house, and these desperate men who want nothing more than their paralyzed friend to be healed, they can't fight through the crowd. The crowd won't let them in. And so they climb up onto the roof of where Jesus was staying, likely Peter's house. But it was Jesus' house when he lived there. And they put a hole in the roof and lowered this paralyzed man down at the feet of Jesus as Jesus was preaching. This man said nothing to Jesus, but Jesus looked down at him and He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. You remember back in chapter 2 that when Jesus made that statement earlier in chapter 2, we read it in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, that, that, that is to say, It wasn't just the faith of the paralytic, it was the faith of the guys that dropped him down there. In fact, maybe they had more faith than even the paralytic, but it was to the paralytic who maybe had only a little bit of faith that God said to him, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. And verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? They didn't recognize Jesus as deity. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, of course, exposed them and their criticism, but now in this current debate over the Sabbath, Jesus answers their question. You want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the Son of Man, and I am the Lord of heaven and earth. Son of Man is a messianic title taken from Daniel chapter 7. If you turn Back to Daniel 7. We've alluded to it before. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel writes about this. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to who? The Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am who Daniel prophesied. I am the Lord. He has referenced David already, right? Verses 25 and 26. He mentions David who ate the holy bread. There's a couple reasons why Jesus chose that illustration to expose the legalism of the Pharisees. Number one, David was at the heart of that, who was the king of Israel. And secondly, 
What happened on the Sabbath was that the old bread was exchanged for the new bread. So that there was a connection between the Sabbath, which was the controversy, and King David. Jesus never wasted words and he never wasted an illustration. He's mentioned King David. Earlier, you remember back in verse 19, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, my disciples are not fasting because I am the bridegroom. What is that all about? Well, that concerns the imagery of the Old Testament, which refers to Yahweh, to Jehovah, as the bridegroom of Israel. So he's already referred to himself as Yahweh in sort of a veiled way, taking the very imagery that God uses for himself in the Old Testament. He's referenced King David in this very episode, and now he refers to himself as the Son of Man and as the Lord. He's pointing to his sovereignty, isn't he? He's pointing to the the fact that he has a kingdom, that he is a king, he is the only king, He is the greater king. He has more authority than David had in the tabernacle that day at Nob. His kingdom is bigger. In fact, Matthew has a way of pointing out some details. If you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew's account of this very incident tells us something else that Jesus says. After pointing out The fact that David went into the temple and ate the holy bread. Notice what else Jesus said according to Matthew. Matthew 12 and verse 5. He goes on to say, Not only will I give you the example of David, but have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, have you not read your Bible? Do you not know that there is a lot of work that is done on the Sabbath by the priests. It's their busiest day of the week. And God does not hold them guilty. They are guiltless. They're not guilty of profaning the Sabbath because they're working, they're serving the people of God. Just as Ahimelech served David by giving him bread. Just as Jesus served the disciples by allowing them to eat grain in the middle of a busy day of ministry. And then he says this. He's talking about the tabernacle and the temple, and he just goes for the juggler. Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What did the temple stand for? Well, the temple stood for everything about Judaism. That was their holy place. Jesus is saying, you're concerned about holy matters. But really, you're hypocrites. I am the Holy One. I am greater than the temple. And I'm standing right before you, and you're condemning me. Verse 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, a quotation from the Old Testament, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am not guilty. My disciples are not guilty. I am the Son of Man. I am the Lord. I am an authority over you. You're an authority unto yourself, but you're wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. 
I'm the greater temple. Chapter 12 of Matthew and verse 38. This is what we call, or many people call, Resurrection Sunday. Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that? Here it is, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He is predicting his death and resurrection. Verse 41 The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a great preacher, not at first. He was disobedient to God. Then he went. Mass revival, repentance. Jesus, what does he do coming out of the gates? According to Mark, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom and calls people to repent. He is not only the greater temple, He is the greater Jonah. Do you understand where this is going? Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Not only that, verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was a king too. Wisest man that ever lived. Not wiser than Jesus. Jesus is saying, I think I know what the law of God teaches. I wrote it. I'm the greater temple, greater Jonah, greater Solomon. And now he's saying, back in Mark, verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I am a greater Sabbath. I am a greater Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That's His identity. He is the Son of Man. He has a kingdom. He is Lord. That's His identity. Now He finishes the statement by pointing to His authority. He says, notice your Bibles, verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord. But He doesn't stop there. Even of the Sabbath. You think you have it all figured out. If there is one commandment all the people believe you on, it's the Sabbath. They're following your influence, what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, where to go, where not to go on the Sabbath. I have news for you. I am Lord even of the Sabbath. That's pretty powerful. But Jesus would say things like this often, wouldn't He? I quoted to you earlier Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus speaks about His yoke being easy and His burden is light. But in verse 27, before, right before that, right before verse 28 of Matthew 11, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And how does Matthew end his gospel. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Been given to me. I am the final king. I am Lord over all things, even the Sabbath. As Jesus said in verse twenty seven, the Sabbath was made for man, 
This meant that God made it. Because Jesus is God, it means that Jesus made the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a shadow of the fulfillment which is Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 2.16. God and God alone has authority, therefore, and here is the point, to lay down Sabbath principles to observe. Since the Son is one with the Father, John 10.30, since the Son is one with whom the Father said He was well pleased, Mark 1, verse 11, He is therefore Lord even of the Sabbath. And as Sovereign Lord, He has a right to lay down principles for observing and governing the Sabbath day. The Pharisees have no right to challenge Jesus. They had prided themselves in being interpreters of the law, and Jesus proves here they were twisters of the law. Jesus alone had authority in accurately interpreting the Word because He is God, and He is the author of the Word of God. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Solomon. Jesus is the greater Sabbath. And it doesn't matter how much you rest, if you do not rest in Christ, you are damned in your sins. You cannot get to heaven by obeying the law, even by obeying one day in seven and doing everything you think you're supposed to do. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Now, turn back with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah chapter 23. Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what Jesus came to do. One of the chief things he came to do, execute justice and righteousness. What does that mean? It means a lot of things, but according to our discussion from this text, it means he sets the record straight on this very important point. It is always man's default to try to earn his way to heaven. Jesus came to execute justice and righteousness. God is just to forgive sins because He punished all the sins of all of those that would ever believe in Him upon His precious Son. And God is righteous in doing that because Jesus is righteous, holy, spotless, undefiled, dying in the place of sinners. He is the righteous branch of David. He is the one who is ruling and reigning and will rule and reign according to 1 Corinthians 15, quoting from Psalm 110, until all of His enemies are placed under His feet. He is the one and only true King. He is the Son of David. He is Lord even of the Sabbath. And therefore, Jesus alone has the prerogative to say what Sabbath observance is and what it is not. He is the Son of David, and He is at the same time the Son of God. There would be times in which Jesus would often refer to David. Here's one example. Jesus taught in the temple, and He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? 
David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, Jesus is at the same time the son of David and the Lord of David, isn't he? He's the son of David only because he descended from him, but he is the Lord of David because he has a higher authority than David. And what did David do? David, technically speaking, broke a ceremonial law divinely established by God. So if Jesus wants to break some man-made tradition on the Sabbath, he'll do it. He'll do it. Now, much more could be said about that, but as we close our time together, what I want to do is sort of redirect our attention to a practical issue, and I mentioned this this morning, but here is, here is the question, and it's an, it's an important question. If one day in seven as a principle remains intact, and the principle of the Sabbath is a creation ordinance that transcends the, the covenants, and so we find ourselves in the new covenant, and the apostles have obviously made Sunday, the first day of the week, um, the Lord's Day, the new Christian Sabbath, or the Christian Sabbath, to be more precise. What do we learn from this passage in terms of what it means when we say that Christ fulfills the Sabbath as our eternal rest, and yet at the same time, the principle of one in seven still remains? What I want to do is give to you five words to help us think through this, and we'll go through these fairly quickly. I promised you we'd get out by 7, and I have 13 minutes, so I'm fully confident I can do this in 13 minutes. Uh, 12, actually. First, a word about Sabbath precedence. Okay? A word about Sabbath precedence. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John receives a revelation from the Lord. We could say he hears a sermon from the Lord. On Sunday, first day of the week. And we read in Revelation 1 and verse 10, these words, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, that is Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So as New Covenant Christians, we celebrate what we refer to as the Lord's day. Two things need to be said about Sabbath precedence. Number one, Jesus was not overturning Sabbath observance. I want to be clear about that. He was not violating in any way, shape, or form the law of God regarding the Sabbath. He never sinned one time in thought, word, or deed regarding any of the commandments. Calvin and others are clear about this in their commentaries. That in other words, Jesus observed the Sabbath during his life. He regularly attended the synagogue on the Sabbath. He regularly preached. He honored the Sabbath. He kept the Sabbath holy. At the same time, when he established the new covenant, the Sabbath as an Old Testament law passed away. But the principle, one day in seven, did not pass away. This means that there was a precedent set at creation Though the day of the week has changed, and though the way we observe the day of the week, Sunday, different than the way the Jews observe Saturday, vastly different, it is nevertheless to be a day of rest. A day to remember, first and foremost, the Lord's resurrection. That's why I said this morning we need to be careful with so-called holy days, including Easter, because 
Every Sunday is a day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. So the Lord's day. It's the day he rose from the dead. So I think it's wrong to twist Jesus' words to overturn the principle of one day in seven. And many people will try to do that. And I think that it's wrong. Resting from worldly employments is a biblical concept and a biblical precedent that was established at creation. One of the lessons to take from this passage, Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath, is to tell all civil magistrates that they have no authority over what day of the week the church meets. The government has no right to tell the church when to meet and when not to meet. Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord even of the Sabbath. And by the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it becomes clear, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week they met. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to the fellowship. They were committed to the church. They were committed to honoring what we can call the Christian Sabbath to the Lord's Day. There is precedence for the Sabbath. So that's a word about Sabbath precedence. Number two, here's a word about Sabbath attendance. I think that the confessions, and if you can find a copy of the Westminster Confession, uh, which you can, you can just Google it and you can find it, um, or the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, I think those confessions helpfully define the importance of the Christian's attendance in Lord's Day worship. It speaks about the religious observance on the Lord's Day of hearing the reading of the Word of God, of conducting oneself in reverential affairs, of hearing the Word of God, singing, proper administration of the sacraments, prayer. It tells us, and I'll quote from one section, it is the law of nature that in general a proper proportion of time ought to be set apart for the worship of God so God in His Word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to Him. So corporate worship, when we talk about the Lord's Day, is really the emphasis. We need to be careful not to go beyond the authority of Scripture. And if you read the confessions, I think that the confessions generally navigate away from legalism, but what happens is people begin to read too much into the confessions and they can become modern-day Pharisees. We don't want to do that. When you think about the Lord's Day, you need to think about the fact that there is a Sabbath precedence and there is the importance of Sabbath attendance. Here's a third word for you. A word about Sabbath observance. I mentioned this earlier. It is perhaps ironic that we're discussing the Sabbath... And really, as Reformed folk, we wouldn't say ironic, we would say providential, that we're studying this um, on the one day in in the year that people actually go to church. Mr. J, who sits in the back, heard R.C. Sproul say one time on Easter Sunday, he welcomed everyone who had came for the first time. And he said, "I, I just want to tell you Merry Christmas. Because I won't see you again until next Easter, so this will carry over. Without getting into all the debates during the Reformation, I just want to make this simple point. All the Reformers and essentially all the Puritans to a man designated holy days as something to be very carefully thought through. For example, Calvin 
allowed, quote-unquote, holy days like Easter, Christmas, whatever, to be observed, but he was basically deferring to the civil magistrates who thought it would be a good idea to observe it because if they didn't observe it, they might have, it, have greater problems on their hands. And so to preoccupy the people from getting into trouble, special services were held in Geneva on certain days. Very, very, very limited. For example, you can read a sermon that Calvin preached on Christmas in which he warns his congregation over and over and over again against superstition. Superstition in regarding one day as better than another day. No one loves Christmas more than I do. But how many people at Christmas turn it into a superficial, sentimental, superstitious thing? How many people do that with Easter? And what I want to say to you this evening is that if we're not careful, you can even do that with the one day of the week that is to be set apart. You can view it so superstitiously that you begin to think, if I don't do this activity or that activity, God's going to get me. God's going to be angry with me. No, the reality is he's already angry with you because you don't attend church enough for most people. So I think that many Christians need to be careful not to be overly restrictive upon their own conscience or the consciences of others. Because that doesn't make us any more religious than the Pharisees in that sense. Let me give to you a fourth word, a word about Sabbath dependence. Sabbath dependence. We've looked at a word about Sabbath precedence, a word about Sabbath attendance, a word about Sabbath observance. Here's a word about Sabbath dependence. In principle, the concept of one day a week where you rest is biblical, if for no other reason than it's good for your health. It's good for you physically, it's good for you spiritually, it's good for you mentally. Isaiah 58 says that we are to delight in the Sabbath. It is a day that is to make us holier, healthier, happier, more helpful. In fact, I read several verses to you this morning, and I'll just I'll remind you of a couple of them, Exodus 34, 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. Anytime the Bible speaks about the Sabbath, it speaks about it as a day of rest. That, that's what it is. It is a day that we worship the Lord, but it's also a day of rest. Deuteronomy 5.12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. It is a day of rest. We've been created in the image of God. Six days God made the world. The seventh He rested. We are to reflect that image we were created in and one day in seven rest. And I I therefore think that the Sabbath can be a real blessing to people if they learn to depend upon it as a day in which they take a time out from the normal, everyday activities of life. To look forward to it. To not be bothered by maybe things during the week that you would be bothered by. It can be a day of great dependence and the Lord wants you to lean on that day. So, A word about Sabbath precedence, a word about Sabbath attendance, a word about Sabbath observance and Sabbath dependence. Fifth, and I'll close with this, a word about Sabbath experience. I guess I would just say this. Don't allow your experience to dictate your views. Many of you know that I went to a very strict college that had a lot of requirements on Sunday. Things that you could do, things that you could not do. 
pretty rigorous, pretty strict. And a lot of those rules were extra-biblical and perhaps we could even say pharisaical in many ways. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There was a point they were trying to make, the principle of one day in seven. And as a college student, for them to require you to go to Sunday school, Sunday morning worship and Sunday evening worship, and be involved in a Christian service throughout the week was a wonderful discipline for someone 18, 19, 20, 21 years old to learn. They don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. On the other hand, maybe you come from not a legalistic background on these issues, but you've been influenced by those who take no regard for Sunday. And now you, the pendulum swings the other way. You see, where, where now you've got to set some restrictions because you don't want to fall back. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, I think probably those people maybe weren't taught regarding the principle of one day in seven, and maybe those people were doing a better job of resting that day and not being so concerned about following rules and regulations made up by man. So here's the general rule of thumb. Make Sunday the most important day of your week. Make it the most important day of your week. That begins by going to church. And flowing from that, I promise you will come such joy and gladness in your heart that you will be able to prepare with wisdom how to deal with other matters of what to do and what not to do. And I would just say this to you fathers and to you, your, you husbands, you have a responsibility as the head of your home to determine how your family observes the Lord's Day. And as a church, we're not going to come into your home and police what you do and what you don't do. But you will answer to the Lord. And so we need to pray for one another regarding these matters. Well, I told you I'd finish at 6 o'clock. It's exactly 6 o'clock. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the clarity of your word on these issues. We recognize that when we're dealing with Jesus's controversy with the religious leaders that we see before us Jesus dealing with with them with boldness but also gentleness. He was firm. He was committed to what the word of God said. But he was also very gentle. Straightforward, And we understand that as we talk about issues pertaining to the Lord's Day, observing the Lord's Day, that we don't want to turn into the Pharisees by causing unnecessary burdens on your people. The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the sake of the Sabbath. And you've given it to us as a gift for us to enjoy. Help us to glean these practical insights from this passage as we think through these issues. Father, we thank you for such a blessed day of worshiping you. And now as we close this wonderful Lord's Day with doxology and a benediction, we pray that you would help us as we lay our heads down tonight to reflect upon all that you've instructed us from your word. We do give you the glory and we give you the praise as we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ.